Uh, let me share you our scripture reading for today. It comes from Jonah, chapter 4. It is on page 6 of our worship guide, and it will be on the screen behind me as well. So let's read Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of God. Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. Thank you for being here. My name is Jonathan. I get to serve as a pastor of this church. Welcome to all of you. Maybe you're joining uh, Trinity for the first time. Maybe you've come with some friends. Maybe you're visiting the city uh, on vacation and you found us. So thank you for being a part of us. We are about four months old as a new church plant. Uh, we're here in this part of the city wanting to be a church that can truly love our neighbors, answer questions for people who have questions about Christianity, organized religion, potentially been outside of the church for a long time, and this is a new experience for them. We want to be a church like that, where people feel comfortable coming in with difference, differences of opinion, but want to get to the heart of what Christianity is about. And so if that's you, hopefully you will feel comfortable today, and you feel like this can be a place where you can learn and grow and get to know some other folks. Uh, we're in the last chapter of a short book called Jonah. Maybe you are, uh, have, know a little bit about the book of Jonah. Maybe you assume that this book was primarily about a fish. You're going to have a difficult time wrestling with the fairy tale nature of a book like Jonah. Hopefully, you have seen that it's about a whole lot more than what took place in chapter 2, that this is a complex book with a complex character with a unique God who is addressing different issues primarily in the life of his man, Jonah. So there's so many different things have grown out of it. We are in this surprising ending. If you've never read through the book of Jonah and all you're familiar with is him getting swallowed by a fish, there is a surprising ending here in chapter 4. I think we're going to have fun finishing out our series today. Uh, but let me give you a one-and-a-half, two-minute overview of the book, and then we're going to jump into this chapter. It's pretty easy to summarize. It goes like this. There's a Jewish prophet. His name is Jonah. He's been called by God to go 550 miles uh, north and east to the foreign Assyrian Empire. Um, they have 
a brutal society. All of this has grown up before the face of the Lord. He has seen the atrocities of the Assyrians. He whispers in the ear of his man, Jonah. He says, I need you to go and preach in the foreign empire in the capital city of Nineveh. Most of the prophets in the Old Testament, when they're called, they end up going where God calls them to go. This guy, once he's called, he runs in the opposite direction. But God's not going to let him go. And so you start to find out very early that there's this process of not just bringing Nineveh back home, but there's this process of bringing Jonah back home. And Jonah's on the run, and God brings a storm to catch his attention. They're, he's out at sea. There's all these foreign sailors on the boat. Jonah realizes very quickly that he is the source of the issue. He's the source of the storm. He has put other people's life into jeopardy. And so he says, the only way this is going to end is if you throw me in. Remember, the sailors don't want to. They're the ones who kind of stand up. They're the ones who seem to have the moral backbone. Jonah is the one who's running. He's the Jewish prophet, but you have the sailors who are the ones saying, we want to do the right thing. Inevitably, they end up having to throw Jonah in. Once he hits the water, the storms begin to stop, the waves begin to cease, and there's complete calm. But what's happening to our prophet is he is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. And he knows that he's been disobedient. He knows that this is his moment of reckoning. He is sinking to the bottom of the sea. God swoops in last moment, saves this guy's life. He ends up spending three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. The apologetic behind that is simply this, that if we believe in the God of creation, we believe in a God who has done all things, and He's done all things well. And if we believe that He came to earth, then we can actually believe that what took place in Jonah was real. Of course, we can probe it scientifically. We can kind of lean into it and say, that sounds unbelievable. But look out the window. All of that looks unbelievable. So this story actually fits within our understanding of a God who does amazing things, who came to earth, who is a God of the miraculous. He ends up getting swallowed for three days, three nights. He's spit back out onto the shore. He's recommissioned to Nineveh. He ends up going. He preaches a five-word sermon, and their lives are changed <laughs> on the spot. Five words, eight words in English. He ends up preaching this sermon. The Ninevites listen. There is this citywide revival. People who had no idea who this God was, who Jonah was, he is a singular man standing with 120,000 people listening neighborhood by neighborhood. And the moment he speaks the truth that God has seen your actions, your evil has risen up before him, you've got 40 days to change your ways. The moment they hear that, they change their ways. And this is where we land ourselves, right on the eve or the precipice of this announcement, that five-word sermon and God's decision to relent from the disaster he was about to send. So here we are, chapter 4. There's, four, there's three things that I'm going to walk you through. If you're a note taker, number one, we're going to look at an angry prophet. Number two, we're going to look at a tearful God. And number three, we're going to look at a lingering question. An angry prophet, a tearful God, and a lingering question. Under the first one, the angry prophet. Let's read, read a couple of verses. It'll be on the screen behind me. I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 3 and then the first couple of verses from chapter 4. So Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. 
For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is literally coming off maybe the highest point in his career. I mean, this is a moment where he should have been stepping on stage. Let's say, I want to thank my mom. I want to thank my Lord Jesus Christ, my Savior. I mean, this is a moment where he has arrived. 120,000 people heard his sermon and responded. This is sold out Madison Square Garden. This is Rose Bowl three nights in a row. This is literally the high point of his career. And you look at his response. See, literally, the unthinkable has happened. A lone Jewish prophet has traveled 550 miles to the foreign uh, capital city of Assyria. He has preached, and they have listened. And here is an individual who is spitting mad. He is furious. The story is showing us, number one, God's word is powerful. Number two, it jumpstarts this citywide revival. Number three, God spares Nineveh, and Jonah can't handle it. And he's mad because his suspicion has been confirmed. I mean, in a sense, he's saying, I knew this was going to happen. Everybody in the story is wondering about the character of this God. In chapter one, it's the sailors. They go, wake up, Jonah. Maybe your God will save us. There's always a question mark. Maybe your God's going to be the one who comes in and redeems this situation. In chapter three, it's the king of Nineveh. He goes, who knows? Maybe if we put dust on our head and we sit in the ash, maybe this God's going to come in and be gracious to us. And in chapter one, there's a maybe. In chapter three, there's a maybe. But Jonah's saying all along, I knew it. I knew it. You wondered. God's gracious. You knew it. You wondered. God's gracious. I knew it. And what he does here is he actually quotes from this unique place in Exodus chapter 34 where God is revealing himself to the prophet Moses. Look at the quote. He says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And what he does when he quotes that part of Exodus 34 is he's holding God hostage. He's using God's promises against God and then for his own benefit. Jacques Ellul says this. He says, when we find in the Bible that which justifies us in our eyes, when reading the Bible we say, I was right, when we see in it an argument for us and against others, when we are righteous in our own judgment, we can be certain that like Jonah, we have turned the revelation against God. Here's a guy who should have been celebrating. I mean, isn't this what it means to be a prophet? If you come in and you plant a church and 120,000 people end up giving their lives to Jesus, you go, I don't know, I'm just kind of, I'm not kind of peace, peace out, walk away. This is what's happening in this story. I mean, this is supposed to be this high point, and all of a sudden you realize that there's more bubbling beneath the surface of this individual. Here's a man who should have been celebrating. If he's anything like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, when he goes to a foreign city, people who had no idea who God was, when he goes and announces the gospel, he stays. But Jonah doesn't stay. He runs outside of the city. We're going to look at that in just a moment. He should have been in the city. 120,000 people are reforming and changing their lives, and they're going, tell me about this God who's bringing disaster in 40 days, but he's given us 40 days to change our ways. He doesn't bring disaster immediately. Tell us more about your God. He goes, know what? 
five-word sermon, bounces out of the city, stands in condemnation on a hill, watching the city from afar. But he should have been in it. He should have been cultivating relationships. He should have been starting small groups where people could understand the gospel, where they could work out their understanding of faith. He could have been starting small house churches. He doesn't do any of that. He leaves the city. He heads east. He waits out the 40 days to see if God is actually going to judge the city. So the question is, What's happening inside the heart of Jonah? Well, what's going on inside of this man? And I want to say that he is displaying clear symptoms of the cancer of self-righteousness. Some of those symptoms are uncontrollable anger, extreme irritability, an inability to celebrate somebody else's success, a desire for other people to fail, judgmentalism, fear and insecurity that ultimately results in hopelessness. Two times in this story, he leans into God and goes, listen, if that's what you're going to do, I don't want to live anymore. So you have all of these different emotions. Insecurity ultimately results in hopelessness and this tragically foggy recall of the past. Jonah has completely forgotten what grace at the bottom actually looked like in his life. He seems to completely misunderstand and misappropriate God's saving mercy, love, and grace that took the form of that fish. Because you remember in chapter 2, it is this moment of reckoning for him. He starts to see his life clearly. He starts to see his heart clearly. He starts to see God clearly. But evidently, the grace that saved Jonah in chapter 2 has not reached his heart yet. Again, Alul says this. He says, at this point, Jonah shows that he has not really understood his own adventure. He has understood only one thing, his own sacrifice and faithfulness. He has already forgotten the grace which was lavished on him. He has already lost the mystery of the pardon by which he lives anew in newness of life. For him, everything depended on that grace, but he does not think it a good thing that it should be shown to others. What he essentially says is, God, I know that you are gracious, you're steadfast, that you love to show mercy to me. But please, there is a limit to mercy. Don't show it to them. And he's got reasons behind it. Let me give you a definition of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, self-righteousness can be defined as having or being characterized by a certainty, especially an unfounded one, that you are totally correct or morally superior. Having or being characterized by a certainty, especially an unfounded one, that you are totally correct or morally superior. Synonyms include sanctimonious, holier-than-thou, self-satisfied, smug, priggish, complacent, too-good-to-be-true, pious, pietistic, L.A. sports fans, moralizing, unctuous, (laughs) superior, mealy-mouthed, and hypocritical. Sorry, L.A. Just kidding. All of those synonyms are words you say, I want nothing to do with that. That's not the type of person I want to be. That's not the type of person I want to be around. But inevitably, what you're going to find is that's a huge part of who we are. Let me show you. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he is consistently dealing with the sin of self-righteousness. There's a famous story in Luke chapter 18 where he tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. But Luke gives us a little bit of information leading up to the telling of that story. So here's the background. Here's the context for why Jesus even tells the story in the first place. Luke writes, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's the background. 
He goes, and then let me tell you a little story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a tax collector, one was a Pharisee. Obviously, the Pharisee feels a little bit more at home, a little bit more comfortable when he walks into the temple. So he ends up standing kind of by himself on the side, and he looks out at the crowd. He goes, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that person, that person, that person. Oh, and especially that tax collector. I thank you that I'm good. Thank you that I'm just. Thank you that I love other people. Thank you that I give portions of my money away. Thank you that I tithe regularly. Thank you that I'm a moral human being and not like him. But then you got the tax collector in the story who's on the side. He's removed from community. He won't even lift his eyes toward heaven. All he does in the story is beat his breast and say, oh, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes that story by saying, only one of those men went home justified but he told the story in the first place to try to uncover what was going on in this principle of self-righteousness, that there are people out there trying to make themselves look distinct and different as opposed to another. Self-righteousness, let me just put it real simply, is the belief that there is something about me that makes me right. Self-righteousness. There's something about me that you don't have that makes me right and makes you wrong. And we all have this tendency inside of us. To be human means that we are hardwired to prove our worth. We search for something about us that proves that we are right. And I don't just mean right as opposed to wrong. I mean right as in I should be here. That I have a right to be represented. That it is right and good that I have value and worth and meaning. But the reality is that sort of human disposition is a cancer of the soul and it manifests itself in all sort of deconstructive ways. And one of the clearest ways that, that self-righteousness roars its head is through the principle of elitism. Elitism. And of course, this can be intellectual or it can be academic. We can use things like our resumes, academic and institutional backgrounds, family pedigrees to set ourselves apart. But most of the time, at least on the West Coast, because on the East Coast, I spent 11 years in Boston, that is an elite city. It does not take long for you to bump up against an individual and you find out real quick where they went to school, where they work, kind of what they make, right? what, by what they're wearing, how they hold themselves. One of the first things that we are asked in that city is, what do you do? Where'd you go to school? What's your background? What's your resume? San Diego's a little bit more laid back, right? We don't ask those questions on the first date. We ask those questions maybe within the first or second year. I have met people that I've known for a long time. They dress super casual, wearing shorts and flip-flops all the time, and I lean into them, and they, they go, you know, I have a PhD. I'm like, what? You got a PhD? In Boston, I would have found out on day one. In San Diego, it's not cool to let people see our CV and our resume. I appreciate that about San Diego. Right? We're a little bit more laid back, but, we, and, but the reality is, even if it's not academic or intellectual elitism, there are all of these human ways in which we prove we're right. Let me give you a few. We cling to things like personality, body type, accents, color of our skin to prove what camp we're in and who's right and who's wrong. We use our talent levels, skill sets, paychecks, zip codes, network depth and breadth, Instagram likes, fashion sense, food choices. You ever go to a restaurant and you feel a little bit guilty? It's like food shame for what you ordered. The other day I went in, I ordered something. I don't remember where was I. I was kind of walking back and it looked amazing. And all these people kind of looking at me, and some of them are like, oh, that looks amazing. Some of them are like, how could you? How could you order that? so many carbs, right? So there's this sense of 
we will use anything that we can get our hands on right, to prove that we are right and somebody else is wrong. And you have these grand scale things up here at the top. Please do not make it this grand scale thing where you go, I'm not an elitist. There are little things about us that we use, different rhythms, different routines, different preferences, to show that we are cultured, savvy, well-connected, intelligent, not like other people. Self-righteousness creates all different sorts of social disorders, egotism, hatred, prejudice, a lack of compassion, a deterioration of community, a disregard for the common good. It feeds systemic injustices like racism and classism and elitism, and more personally to us, it has led to the crushing impotence of the church in the 21st century. Because so many people are looking at the church and equating Christianity and the glory of the gospel and Christians with self-righteousness. It's not what it's about. It is so easy to cling to anything to prove that I'm right and that you were wrong. And in this story, you see it in Jonah chapter 4. You had hints of it in chapter 1, 2, and 3, but it is full stage it is uncovered here in Jonah chapter 4. There is something about his audience that goes, I'm not interested. God may be interested. I'm not interested. And there's this cancer of self-righteousness oozing all over these last few pages. So you have an angry prophet, number one. Let me take you to the second part, a tearful God. Look at verse 4 with me. In verse 4, we read, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and he made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Here in this chapter, God asked Jonah three questions, and he has one primary object lesson to help Jonah see things differently, but also to soften Jonah's heart. When Jonah sees that God relented from the disaster that he intended to bring upon Nineveh, he goes out of the city, he sits for 40 days, he's kind of pouting like this, I imagine his foot is stomping, he builds a little bit of a shade for himself, what he calls a booth, obviously he's not great at construction, he's a better prophet, he's got the sun beating down on him, God looks over and goes, man, that is bad construction, you need some help. So he ends up planting this plant or allows this plant, which is probably a rickonous or a castor oil plant, to grow up over Jonah. And in the story, the moment that this plant comes and brings him cool and shade and comfort, he looks back over his shoulder and kind of goes, finally a break. Right? Finally, God is on my side. Finally, a little bit of comfort in this huge journey of coming all the way up here to Nineveh. This is his moment. And interestingly, this is the time in the entire book, in this moment when the shade comes up over him, that Jonah is the happiest. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, you see that he is exceedingly glad. I mean, that's the author's way of saying, this guy, is, he is head over heels. Finally, something's going his way. This is when he is the gladdest. But the next morning, God sends a worm first that attacks a plant. 
Secondly, he sends a Middle Eastern sun up overhead. Then he sends the scorching Santa Ana winds, literally. You have these hot winds coming and beating down on this prophet, and Jonah's gladness is quickly replaced with despair, so much that he asks for the second time for his life to be taken away. And it's the second time that the Lord responds to him by saying, do you do well to be angry? Second time the question's asked. And what he's asking Jonah is, is there any good cause for your anger? To which Jonah replies, yes, there is, and I'm angry enough to die. Then in verses 10 and 11, keep your eyes there. In verses 10 and 11, the Lord really gets to the heart of what's going on. He says to Jonah, I see that you pity that plant. Not pity the fool, but pity the plant, okay? He pities that plant, and this is a very emotional word. This is a word that carries with it the connotation of deep grief and eyes filled with tears. That is the context of that word. It's the word that carries with it, with it the image of actions executed with tears in your eyes. So God says to his prophet, I see that you're passionate about that plant. I see that you had a lack of comfort. And I brought that plant, I planted it, I gave it to you, I've given you the cool, I've given you the shade, I'm the one who did all of that. Have you watered it? Did you nurture it? Did you plant it there? And yet you are so deeply grieved to the point of tears, Jonah, that the moment that that plant is taken away, the moment that it died, you grieved, you showed such pity, you had tears in your eyes for that which you lost. So then he leans and he goes, you know what, is it okay if I have tears in my eyes for Nineveh? I pity that city. I have deep grief for that city. You grieve for something that you didn't even plant, and I created all of them. Is it okay if I have tears in my eyes? Is it okay if there's grief in my soul? It's essentially what he's saying in this conversation. As God's man... And as God's prophet, if God is shedding tears for the city, then the prophet, then Jonah, should have been shedding tears for the city. But he's not. He's standing against it. He's opposed. He's angry. He's despairing. He's hopeless. He is thinking about, he's thinking about walking 550 miles back home and what his friends are going to say, that he announced a message of hope to Israel's enemies. All of this tension, all of this anxiety, all of this despair, all of this self-righteousness that removes him from his audience, all of that's going on. And what he's essentially saying is, Jonah, if I'm weeping for the city, you should be too, but you're not You've stood against it. And we have to look much later to another man and to another prophet, namely Jesus, who wept for the city, who had deep compassion for the city. As Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem just a few days before his death, in Luke, 9, Luke chapter 19, it's recorded that when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. In Hebrews chapter 5, we read, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Then in John chapter 11, when one of his best friends named Lazarus dies, not only does Jesus weep for the loss of his friend, but he is deeply moved and deeply grieved over death itself. He is steaming with anger, angry enough even to die, truly. 
That is one of the catalytic moments in the Gospels where Jesus says, enough is enough. I've come to end all this. You spend enough time studying the life of Jesus Christ, and you quickly find out that He is truly a man of sorrows. He is a man of such deep emotion. He is recorded, interesting fact, He is recorded as crying much more than He ever is recorded as laughing. How come? How come? It's because He is so deeply affiliated with our loss, with our grief, with our pain. When he sees something that's broken, it breaks his heart. When he sees broken lives, broken bodies, broken marriages, broken relationships, in the Gospels, we see a weeping Savior because he is so deeply affiliated with your pain and your pain and my pain. This is the Savior at the center of Christianity. All of it breaks his heart. He's like the best of fathers who will do anything to end the suffering of his children. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a story. He says, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? My son Mason turned 10 years old this week. Big birthday. It It is a momentous moment for me to give gifts, but also give a lot of words, to love him, to show him how thankful I am for him. He's the oldest of three. He's an incredible kid. I wanted to give him a few gifts, but a lot of encouragement. Got to tell him how much I love him, how much I'm proud of him, how how much of a leader he is, how much I pray for him, that I have hopes for him, that he can never lose my love, that it doesn't matter who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do in the future. Teenage years are coming. You can't lose my love, son. I might want to disown you, but you can't lose my love, son. Just remember that. We lavish these words on one another. And so if I love my son, and if Jonah pitied that plant, how much more did God, the creator of every human body and every human soul, love the great city of Nineveh and love you and me? It's as if he leans into Jonah and he says, this is God speaking to Jonah. He says, Jonah, I know that they all deserve justice, but I love them so much. My eyes are filled with tears because I want to show a mercy. See, that's the dynamic of this story. He goes, I know they deserve justice, but I love them so much. I am deeply grieved for that city. I want to show them grace. And so God sent his one and only son, mercy incarnate, into our world to walk in our skin so that he could be both just and the justifier, so that he could be the one who holds all wrongs accountable, but so that he could show grace. This is how Jesus completes the story of Jonah. You have an angry prophet. You have this tearful God. You have compassionate grace that looks like tears. And then thirdly, let me take you to the last part, which is this lingering question. The book of Jonah It concludes with an unanswered question, which means that the question is not just for Jonah to answer or the original audience, it's for you and for me. We're supposed to wrestle with this last question. Look at verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? 
and also much cattle. What a weird way to end. This is not part of my sermon, but this is such a cool thing I studied this week. At the very end, it says, and also much cattle. Isn't that kind of a weird way to end the book? 120,000 persons and also much cattle. In chapter 3, this is cool. This is a little free information. In chapter 3, the king of Nineveh, he's looking around going, man, we are in trouble. Right? God is coming. 40 days or he's going to bring judgment? In chapter 3, what does he tell the people to do? Put on sackcloth, sit in dust and ashes, repent. But he goes, put it on the cows too. Right? Put the sackcloth on the cows too. And I think there at the very end, God goes, man, there are 120,000 people out there. And he winks at Jonah and he goes, and the cows do. Because they're looking at each other going, cows don't need to repent. Look how crazy my people are. Look how crazy they are. They don't know their right hand from their left. It's this beautiful personal conversation that he's having with the prophet. 120,000 people, and look at what they did with the cows. They didn't need to do that. He kind of jabs them, kind of gives a little laugh. But it's this beautiful conversation that God had. Isn't that cool? 120,000 cows, he kind of laughs and winks at him. <laughs> but verse 11, let me go back. Verse 11, the question is, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? The original audience would have been inclined to say, no way. Do not pity the city. They're secular. They're outsiders. They're sinners. They're wicked. They're evil. Don't show pity. That's how we answer the question. But you're supposed to be forced to wrestle. And if you have read through the entire book of Jonah, you know that when you get to the last question, having seen how compassionate God is with the city of Nineveh and how compassionate he is with Jonah, you're supposed to resoundingly say, yes, yes. The answer to that question is yes. Not no, I'm not going to stand against it, but look how God is so for it. I will stand for it as well. If God is going to weep for the city, if he's going to have tears in his eyes for the city, if he's going to be compassionate to the city, then I'm going to be the same way. And the question itself forces you to grapple with the entire book of Jonah. You're supposed to ask questions like, am I running? Am I angry? Am I militant? Am I hiding? Am I right in and of myself? All these questions you're supposed to wrestle with, or you're supposed to say, or has grace found me at the bottom? Has grace rescued me? Has mercy come into my life so that I am now on the mission that God has me on? His mission has become my mission. His people are now my people. You're supposed to wrestle with that question. Each of us is nudged to answer, will you join God in his mission to save that which is lost? Will you love the city? Our own city, almost 1.4 million people. If the statistics are right, that means that around 10% of people self-profess as Christians. That's the box that they've checked. Somewhere around 10%, which means that there are 1.25 million people in our city who have no clue about Jesus. That using the language of the book, they don't know their left hand from their right, which is a beautiful way of saying they are morally confused. They don't have a roadmap. They don't understand that there could be a better way, that they don't know the glory of the gospel, that they don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. 1.25 million people in our city, and it's probably much higher. The question is, will you love the city? Will we be a part of what God wants to do in our city? Let me leave you with this. In the epilogue to his commentary on Jonah, Tim Keller asks a simple question. He says, how did Jonah respond to God's final question? Did he jump in wholeheartedly and say, I'm your man, I'll go where you send me. It doesn't matter the repercussions of going home. I am on your team. Or did he run the other way? 
And the text clearly does not tell us. But given the fact that we have the story of Jonah in all of its glory and in all of its humiliation, we can make a good guess. Given the fact that we have a man who is on the run, swallowed by a fish, and spitting mad at God, consistently self-righteous, and shaking his fist at everybody he can get eye contact with, we can conclude that Jonah told somebody else what happened. And here's what Keller says, and the only person who can let the entire world see what a fool he has really been is one who has become fully joyful and secure in God's love. Only somebody who has tasted the gravity of their sin, but also the wonder of forgiveness, can step onto the world's stage and show the world who they really are. And this is what Jonah has done. That's the wonder of this book. Not some guy getting swallowed by a fish. It's that a human being would put his arms out and his heart out and go, that's me. I'm bigoted. I'm angry. I've got racist tendencies. I am completely self-righteous. I am running away, but that's who I am. That's the beauty of this book. And the question is, is that you? Is that you yet? More important question is, do you want it to be you? You want to live like that? The reality of the gospel is that it can be today. It can be your life. It can be your story. You can experience renewal. And if that's you, if God's pounding on your heart, don't run. You've run long enough. Stop, listen, question. Christianity has good answers to your hard questions. Stop, listen, stop running. God is gracious. He wants your life. He wants your heart. We'd love to have a conversation about that. But let that question sit in your soul as you keep coming to this church, and we learn how we can love our city. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are gracious to us, that you love us. Man, we don't fully understand love like that. Jonah knew, in theory, that you were gracious, that you're steadfast that you relent from disaster, but he did not know in actuality how good you really are, how loving you really were. But his story has been captured, it's been passed down to us, and honestly, that's the miracle of the book of Jonah. Within Christianity, there is the foundation for being honest. They're the ingredients for stopping the curation of an image. I pray that you do that in my life. You do that in our lives. They would see that grace reaches us at the bottom, that mercy is there waiting for us, but we can consistently run. That is the unique dynamic of a real relationship. You don't demand, you don't force, but you invite. So we pray that you, we would see that the true prophet came, he wept because he was in such close relationship with people. The true Jonah came, and he went into the tomb for three days and three nights so that we can be rescued. Would that story come alive in us, even as we enjoy this meal together? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.